What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Today we have a Q&A episode, just me, a cup of coffee, and Callie napping here next to me. And we're going to get through as many of these as we can in at least the next 36 minutes here. Uh, a little bit more of a rapid fire feel to it. And without further rambling, let's get into it. First question. I'm a short person. Glute leg press placement looks like quad. Any tips? Well, okay, just quick backup. If you're trying to do a glute leg press, what you want generally is your foot relatively higher on the platform. What that's going to do is it's going to decrease the amount of knee flexion, increase the amount of hip flexion. It's just going to make the, the leg press a little bit more glute dominant, a little bit less quad dominant. But what I'm guessing is this is a short person, and when she or he puts their his or her feet up on the platform, they can only reach the low end of the platform. And so they're thinking, well, my feet are low on the platform. That must be quads. It's That's not really what's relevant. I mean, that that's usually a helpful cue that we give, that lower on the platform is going to be quads. Higher on the platform is going to be glutes. But if for you, reaching high means that the highest you can reach is the low part of the platform because you're short, I I would bet that that's, a, that's actually going to be a really good placement for glutes. What matters at the end of the day is if you were to video from a side view and at the bottom of your leg press that your knees are at a rough 90 degree angle, that you're getting a roughly 90 degrees of knee flexion at the bottom of your leg press and no more than that or not much more than that, that it's going to be really great for glutes. And so if you're a short person, yeah, you can't reach high up on the platform. So for you, high up on the platform might be just getting your whole foot on the bottom of the platform. What that really means is that that will be a really great stance for you for glutes, but you might not be able to use the leg press for quads really well because you don't have an even lower foot position available. Now, one thing you can do is you can put like a sponge pad or roll up a yoga mat or yoga blocks and you can start to put them behind you, behind between you and the backrest. And what that'll do is it'll, it's going to bring you closer to whatever. It's going to bring you closer to the foot plate to the platform so that you could maybe reach a smidge higher if you so choose, or if you just need a little bit more range of motion as a short person, that can be really helpful. Um, so again, if you want to try that, there's like those like blue sponge pads that you see in like PT offices. Those are really great. Um, rolled up sponge pads, even throwing a, like a foam roller back there can, can maybe be a little bit less comfortable, but accomplish something similar. Anything that's going to move you closer to the foot plate will be very, very helpful. Next question, does Legion Whey cook well in oats? I really want to try it, and I support you. Uh, it does. Here's the deal, though. I, I would never put whey in the oats and then put the oats in the microwave. So cook the oats first, and then take them out of the microwave or out of the stovetop if you're fucking fancy, uh, and then put the whey in and mix it, and it will be fantastic. I do it all the time. And so I would not cook whey. I don't think I would cook any whey. I think uh, not a good idea. Um, the reason why is escaping me, but at the very least, it, the texture is just off. And so I would cook the oats first, and then I would put the scoop of protein powder in, and then I would mix it all up. It's really great consistency-wise, all good, good to go there. Next question, diet going well, but struggle to fall asleep. Night routine on point. Any other tips? Um, you struggle to fall asleep. My question is like, is it, is it a big deal? Like, are you still netting a decent amount, like a pretty solid amount of sleep? Are you like, hey, I struggled to fall asleep, but I'm still getting eight hours or I'm struggling to fall asleep. I'm still getting six or seven hours. I mean, I think I, at seven plus is where I'd be like, okay, you're good to go. If you're only getting like five or six, definitely not good to go. Um, I would definitely, I know you said night routine on point, but some of the things I'd think about is making sure you're not doing anything in your bed other than sleeping and sexy time. Like there's just no, uh, your brain, you don't want to stay awake in bed. So I know people like to watch TV in bed. I wouldn't do that. People want to like read in bed. I think that's better, obviously, but I still wouldn't do that. 
um, you st- your brain starts to build an association between your bed and being awake, and you don't want that to be an association. You want to go into your bed when you are tired and hopefully, obviously, start to build that association of when I get into this bed that it's time to sleep. And so that might be one big one if you're doing something in bed and then trying to be like, yeah, just turn off whatever I'm doing and I and I try and go to sleep, but I've been in my bed for an hour awake already. I wouldn't do that. Are there people who are going to listen to that and be like, oh, no, that's not true. I do that all the time and I sleep fine. Sure, there are going to be people who say that, absolutely. And it's possible that that is true as well. Um, just not something I would do, especially if you're looking to try and check a lot of boxes here. Um, I think also looking at getting natural sunlight early in at the early part of the day is like on the bookend, just kind of equally important to reducing blue light at night is getting blue light or full spectrum sunlight during the day, preferably during the early part of the day would be a good idea. Um, yeah, night routine on point makes me believe you're doing the normal things like not looking at screens at night. You have a cold, dark bedroom. Maybe you're wearing an eye mask. You're turning the AC to, a, a, you know, somewhere in that like 65 to 68 degrees. Um, all of that stuff. I think maybe a, a hot shower might be, I'm looking for some fringe pieces of advice that you might not be doing. I think a hot shower or hot bath is a really good one. Um, basically what you want is you want your core body temperature to decrease. And what I mean by core, I mean, let's say like literally like physically, like geographically, like your core, uh, your core body temperature, the temperature around your organs, you want it to go down. And one of the ways you can do that is you can actually heat up your periphery. And so if you take like a warm bath, what you're doing is you're bringing a lot of blood and a lot of heat to the surface um, to the to your periphery, to the outer layers of your skin, to your hands, to your feet, things that are far away from your organs. And that can actually help bring your core body temperature down. So that might be one that you're not doing. So maybe some of those help. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to recommend a low-dose melatonin, but I might try it. Um, I might try it. Maybe it's it's during your deficit. It's something that can be helpful. I do also think that like, you know, that you said the diet is going well. And so that leads me to believe that you're, you're not feeling like super fatigued and super irritable, but having like consistent sleep disruption in the context of like not being able to go to sleep, probably not a great sign, but if everything else is going well, then maybe I would just take a look at, does a low dose melatonin help me during this period of my, of my life? Um, and when I say low dose, I mean something like 300 to 500 micrograms, um, Let's be totally honest here. A lot of people are taking like 10 milligrams of melatonin. That's a fucking bomb. And while we don't have uh, research that has established a negative feedback loop with melatonin, we don't have a lot of, there's not like a lot of good research that there is any downside to melatonin. So I can't sit here and stand behind some science that's like, hey, don't take melatonin. But what we know is that melatonin doesn't have a dose response relationship. What that means is that if you find a dose of melatonin that works for you and then you quadruple the dose, you get the same effect. And so once you find, what that means is that you should you should seek out your minimum effective dose and then going higher than that just doesn't seem to have a benefit. And, and Legion makes a good product. It's called Lunar. It has 500 micrograms. It's half of a milligram. And it I've taken it before. It puts me the fuck out. And so a lot of people out there taking these like huge bombs of melatonin. I would just, not, I'm not saying that, I don't want to go too deep into a melatonin discussion right now, but... I would say if you're somebody who's considering taking melatonin, I would at the same time consider what is the least I can take and get a benefit from it. Just on the off chance that long-term there's an issue. Next question for your program. Is Zoom sending form videos and interaction a must or can I just do it on my own? It's absolutely not a must. You can just do the program on your own 100%. Um, Personally, I think the Zoom and the fact that that I check form videos is like 
a ridiculous value add for 27 bucks a month. But to be honest, I will not take it personally if you're like, hey, I don't want to send form videos. Totally fine. To be honest with you, I have thousands of them every mesocycle. And if a couple of people don't feel like sending them, I'm not going to lose any sleep, especially if that's something that you'd prefer. What I would say is that I wouldn't, I, I, I would, uh, I guess I feel a certain way if this was you doing it because you're afraid of being judged or if you're really anxious about putting your form videos out into a public forum there. It's an extremely, extremely kind group of people who have all been probably where you are. People who have never stepped foot in the gym. Some of them are doing this program, sending form videos and getting better. And I just would, I wouldn't want you to miss out on the opportunity to get your form checked because I think that that's so unbelievably important. Um, listen, if you're a seasoned lifter and you're like, dude, I do all this fine and I'm not worried about it or I have somebody checks my form and I just don't feel like doing it, great, no problem. But if you're feeling like, yeah, I know that would be beneficial, but I'm having crippling anxiety about it, then I would want, I just, whatever. You could totally, you could do whatever you want. It's not required. I would just, I would want to encourage you to to kind of work on that for the, for the betterment of future you. I think that there is a lot of value there, but absolutely not. Plus, you don't actually have to come to the Zooms at all. I post all of the Zooms afterwards. And so if you're just kind of like want to watch them afterwards, you don't need to interact. You, there is a lot of, I mean, a ton of good information, very program specific and also other general things that go on in the Zoom, excuse me, that go on in the Zoom. And so, yeah, you don't have to come to the Zoom. You don't have to interact. You don't have to send form videos, but you know, you could watch along and, and I think that would be helpful. And, and I do, I would in this, at least in this context of answering your question on this podcast, I would encourage you to send form videos. I think that it's a huge, huge benefit. Next question, uh, creatine hydrochloride, does it really require less or should I still take five grams? What do you know on it? Um, it's basically it's basically the same shit. Um, I'm not sure that there are claims that it you require less. What I would tell you is that if you require less, like actual grams, then that's probably based on a higher concentration. And so it's end, it ends up being the same thing. It's not like a hack for you to like get less of something but more of the benefit. Like there's no, oh, I'm going to get less water retention or, or and I'll get all the, but it doesn't matter. I mean, if there's somebody, if it's, if it is true, I'm not positive that hydrochloride is more concentrated so that you can take, I guess, a less gram amount, like a smaller serving size. But I, there's no like, uh, it would have the same end result if that is the case. And so it would matter absolutely zero. Um, anything else on that? No, I think at the, the end result is going to be the same. If you're looking to get the best benefit from creatine, that this won't matter. You're going to take less of something that's more concentrated. Maybe that's true. If it is true, then it won't make any actual difference in the outcome um, at all. Cool. Next question. I only have leg extension in my programming right now. I don't care much about growing other quad muscles, um, but I'm curious if that is safe for my quads overall. Is it safe for your quads to only have leg extension? Yes, I think that there's nothing I can say on that that would be not safe. Um, I don't know what you mean by by growing other quad muscles. Uh, the leg extension works all of your quad muscles. And so I'm not sure which quad muscles you think that you're not working. You're working all of them. Um, is it safe for your quads and maybe for overall knee health to only do leg extension? Yeah, maybe. Um, I would look at the rest of your program. Chances are you're doing other exercises that also involve knee flexion, even if they're like lunges or leg presses that you're doing for glutes, you're still getting some quad, uh, even if you're doing like glute dominant uh, back squats or Bulgarian split squats, like all of those work some quad too. So if I were to look at the rest of your program, maybe I would see some of that and be like, actually you're, you're cr crossing off this like, like knee health box quite well. Next question, 
Thoughts on the Force USA G12? Are cables hard to maintain? I'm setting up a home gym. I actually, I mean, I actually know what this machine is. It's like a, it's like a five to six thousand dollar, like all in. It's like a cable. It's like a, it's a Smith machine. Um, it's got a lot of bells and whistles. Here's my advice: if you're in the like north of five thousand dollar range, please just go buy a Prime selectorized rack. Like I think the prime selectorized rack was like sixty six thousand, maybe sixty five hundred, maybe. Um, if you're already in this like north of five thousand dollar range and you're looking for the best bang for your buck, just go. I know this machine, and one of the downsides of the machine, first of all, there's a lot of upsides. Great machine. You're not spending five fifty five hundred, not getting something awesome. You are, but the cables are really short, and so I remember working with some clients, and the cables like don't have as much slack as you would like, and that to me was just like a downside, be a little bit unacceptable. Plus, you're, I, I believe, again, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you're paying for a vertical leg press as one of the options, and I just wouldn't use that. And so it feels like the money is being go, gone towards something that we just wouldn't use. Like vertical leg press is a little bit of hot garbage. It's not really great exercise. Um, you have better alternatives for what that does. So I would put that money towards a Prime selectorized rack or a functional trainer, either by Prime or Kaiser or Life Fitness or any of those brands. I think you'd get a lot out of it. Um the select, I say this electrized rack because it's also a squat rack. If you're interested in doing free weight, like barbell movements, it also, you can just attach, you can get J hooks for it. That's like one of the add-ons you can get. And it doubles as a squat rack and a functional trainer and like a pull-up station. And it has a lat pull-down station. I mean, this thing has all the bells and whistles. I mean, it's the only rack I've ever owned, but it is the greatest piece of equipment I've ever used. And I'm not being paid to say that. I wish I was prime. If you're listening, please help me out here. All right. Sip of coffee. We're back at it. Um, most useful attachments you would recommend for a cable machine? Um, I think just a regular pair of simple D handles. You can get them on Amazon for like 12 bucks. So just type in D handles. I would go with D handles. That's number one. If you want to spend a little bit more, I would get a prime short bar. I think the prime short bar plus the D handles is unbelievable. You can go with the prime rotate handles. I have them. They're awesome. But... You can also just go with cheap D handles and you can attach them to the short bar. And, and in some ways they're actually better because you can utilize your Versa grips when you use them, which is something I've preferred lately, especially as the weights get heavier. I would go with um, a pair of D handles and a prime short bar. And then honestly, everything after that is a luxury. You're good to go with like 99% of things. I think if you're gonna do some cable pressing, like if you wanna do some of the cable pressing I've put up on my stories lately, I would get a pair of CAS handles. The CAS handles by Prime Fitness. Again, there's a lot of this Prime Fitness stuff. Basically, they're just at like the top of the industry right now making some of the best stuff. It is a wider uh, handle. You can't see me on YouTube making some hand gestures here. Um, it is a wider grip. And it is also ergonomically designed to kind of fit the way that your grip, the cylinder of like the way your grip is wider on one end and shorter on the other end. And because it's a wider grip or a, has a bigger diameter, a bigger circumference, whatever, uh, it's a little bit better for pressing because you have a little bit more of a surface area to push into. And sometimes if you're really strong and you're using just really small D handles with like a really small cylinder handle, it can shake a little bit. And so having the CAS handles for cable pressing is really nice. Even if you're not really strong, it's still gonna be more comfortable, but I guess the stronger you are, the more helpful it will be. Awesome. Next question, thoughts on HMB and vitamin D? Really simple, HMB doesn't do shit, don't take HMB. Vitamin D, um, vitamin D. I would prioritize getting sunlight. I think that that should be your number one source of vitamin D. 
But during certain months of the year and at certain uh, certain latitudes, so depending on where you live geographically, it might be really hard to do that. Depending on certain uh, professions, it might be hard to do that, certain lifestyles. So I think vitamin D is in my top tier supplements if you need it. I think right now, living in Texas, I've gotten more sunlight in the last year than ever before. And so I've just gently lowered my vitamin D intake. I'm not gonna drop some dosages here, but I think most people listening to this podcast should take a vitamin D. I recommend a brand... I'm not associated with. Uh, Legion has about, I think, 2,000 IU in the multivitamin, which is really great. Uh, if you're looking for a bit more in the like, 5,000 IU, there's a company called Zhao, Z-H-O-U, that makes it a really nice D plus K2, and having that K2 helps with the absorption, so it's a really good combo. Um, yeah, that's a brand I really do recommend, especially if you're in like higher latitudes, you're not getting as much sun. Um, definitely think vitamin D is worth taking. Next question, if doing CrossFit twice a week is, if I'm doing CrossFit twice a week, is adding a lift upper and lower at home a good way to build? So basically you're doing CrossFit two times and you're asking is if I add on top of that an upper day and a lower day both at home, is that a good idea if I wanna build muscle? Um, well, if you love CrossFit, keep doing it. Like, it's like the first thing I'd say is if your goal is to build muscle, I would do more hypertrophy style training, a little bit less CrossFit. But if the CrossFit is a non-negotiable part of your life that you really enjoy, I love that, by the way. It's awesome. Totally will contribute to your overall muscle gain, 100%. Less optimally, I guess, than more direct hypertrophy work, but still great. And especially if you love it, that's awesome. I think adding an upper and a lower day at home is a great idea. That's full stop. I think if you're like, hey, I'm doing CrossFit and I love it and I don't want to give it up, but I hear all this stuff about hypertrophy, I want to grow a little bit more muscle and I want I can add another couple of days, what should I do? I think adding an upper and a lower day geared towards hypertrophy or maybe even two full body days depending on the way your week is scheduled and how much you care about your performance in CrossFit, I think full body might be a little bit better just so you're not showing up to CrossFit like right after a leg day, super fucking sore and then you're squatting. Um, but adding two days at home, great idea, geared towards hypertrophy would totally help build muscle. How come you don't butter your toast, personal preference or health reason? <laughs> or do you butter it just very little? So I eat a lot of sourdough. I eat a lot of sourdough. There's like a Costco, uh, I was gonna say wake and bake. That's not what it's called. It's like a ready, it's like take, it's called take and bake. There you go, it's genius. Um, and it's like three big loaves of sourdough. And I've just fallen in love with it. It's so damn good. And just chopping it, putting it in the toaster. And then put, I put the other two in the freezer while I'm eating one of them. Um, it's been fantastic. Uh, and I, I put it with my eggs like basically every day. You watch my stories, you see it 100% of the time. And why don't I put butter on my toast? I just don't care. Uh, I end up putting like the egg on top of the toast and then eating it in one bite. And to me, that marriage of flavors is good enough. Like adding, it doesn't even cross my mind to add butter. Just to me, I guess it doesn't, I love butter on toast. Let's, let's call it what it is. But I'm eating, I'm using the toast as like a vessel for the eggs and so for me, it's more of like a sandwich. It ends up being like a sandwich. I put the egg on the toast, then take a bite. And so the butter feels like not the star of the show there. Butter toast is really good though. Now I'm thinking about it. All right. Um, next question, better for tricep building, DB skull crushers, tricep kickbacks, or band work? I don't have cables. Um, I, if you're putting me at the sword here where I have to tell you which one of those three is the best and I have to give a reason for it, I would say skull crushers because they're gonna train the muscle in a more lengthened position. I would not do dumbbell kickbacks. They are just garbage exercise for hypertrophy. Dumbbell kickback is just trash. Um, basically, it's only hard in the short position, has zero tension in a more lengthened position, uh, which is what we want for hypertrophy. We wanna flip that. We want a little bit more tension in a lengthened position. 
And even in that short position, other muscles like your rear delts and your lats end up having a better moment to actually like keep the, the dumbbell where it is. So you're like kicking your arm back and when your arm is totally straight, yeah, your triceps are working, but actually there's a greater moment on the shoulder. And so the tricep ends up not actually being the thing that works really hard. You end up, you can like flex really hard and you can like get a mind muscle connection, but it's not actually a lot of tension on the muscle. So I would just scrap your dumbbell kickbacks. My advice is to do some dumbbell work, skull crushes, JM presses, PJ or pullovers, um, regular, just like chest presses, overhead extensions, doing some overhead tricep extension. I know my group has done um, my version of a dumbbell, single arm dumbbell overhead extension where you're kind of leaning on a slight incline. It's a little bit of an awkward setup if you look at it, but biomechanically it makes a lot of sense. So we kind of make that sort of a trade-off. And so I would do skull crushers, JM presses, maybe PJR pullovers. I would do a dumbbell overhead extension. I would probably do that single arm. I would do regular chest and you know shoulder presses. That's gonna hit some tricep. Push-ups gonna hit some triceps. And then I would incorporate some band work. Uh, the reason that you would incorporate some band work is just because you'll be able to line things up a little bit better, things lining it up in a way that you couldn't if you were using a dumbbell, because when you use a dumbbell, you are always only fighting against gravity, which only ever runs straight up and down. And with the band, you can uh, organize something like a cross cable extension where you could line things up a little bit better for a certain head of the tricep that you wanted, or just generally elbow health, it'll be a little bit better. And so we do incorporate band work into our home tricep work for sure, but we acknowledge that all band work is only hard in the short position. Like even if you line up an exercise that like looks like it challenges the length and position of a, of a muscle, the band gets progressively harder as you move into a shorter position. Like just think about it. Like as I'm extending my elbows, I'm pushing the band, the band is adding tension. And there is the greatest tension when the band is the most stretched, which is when I'm gonna be at the end of the movement in the short position. So that is one inherent downside of bands. And so we make sure not to use them only. Um, again, just generally with band work, here's my take. Make sure that it is complemented by length and position work. So if you're doing it for triceps, make sure there's something in the program or at least in the overall program, doesn't need to be every meso all the time, but make sure overall over the course of your general programming, you're also hitting it, uh, the muscle in a more lengthened position with other exercises like dumbbell work, you know, easy bar work, barbell work, push-ups, all that stuff. Um, and then I also generally would take your band work closer to failure, honestly, all the way to failure, to be totally honest, and then maybe even beyond failure. Like, you're just gonna need to make up for that lack of, of lengthened stimulus, in my opinion, with a little bit closer to failure. Like, you make up for a little bit of the the downside of, of the resistance profile with a little bit closer to failure training. And so I think that if you're, if you're in my group, we take our band work to failure basically from week one, and we progress into beyond failure techniques just to kind of make up for some of that. And if we're totally honest, I think it works really, really well. I think it ends up being good exercise here. Next question. Put on lots of muscle this year. Happy with my aesthetics. How to lift and get stronger, but not bigger. Uh, I have a, I get this question once per Q&A every single time. It's like, hey, I'm, I'm, I like lifting. I've gained some muscle and I'm happy about it, but I don't want to get any bigger. What do I do? A couple of things here. If you've gained some muscle, let's let's presume you've gotten newbie gains. So you've been lifting for like a year and you, you've made an exponentially fast gains because that's what happens when you're new to training. No matter what you do, it's gonna be hard to gain lots of muscle from here. Like, like uh, what I mean is that like, you've gained a high percentage of muscle uh, compared to the amount of time you've been lifting. You've gained a lot of muscle. How do I wanna say this? I'm tiptoeing around this answer here. The truth is you're not going to get that much bigger from here if you've gained a decent amount of muscle already. 
unless you go into a calorie surplus. So the number one thing you should not do if you don't want to get bigger is not to eat in a calorie surplus while you're training. Honestly, if you kept lifting the same way you are, you have been that got you the muscle you have now, but you don't go into a surplus, I don't think you're gonna ever get to a point where you're like, oh my God, I'm too big. Uh, I'm bigger than I'd like to be, let's say. Um, it's, it's very likely you're gonna hit a point where only by going into a calorie surplus will you breach this like, oh, I'm, I'm getting bigger. Um, and that's just because your ability to build muscle at maintenance just goes down. Eventually you need actually like more resources, more calories to actually build more muscle. And so my first thought is like, just, just don't be so worried that this is gonna magically happen if you're at maintenance. It, it probably won't. Even if you just keep doing the same training you've been doing, the same progressive overload, the same trying to, to build muscle, it's just probably not gonna happen as quickly or noticeably at all unless you're in a surplus. Um, it maybe, again, I would need to know more about you, how long you've actually been lifting, how much muscle you've actually built. And so that that, that goes differently for different people. But the first, my first thought is, even if you just kept doing what you're doing, as long as you don't go into a surplus, not much is gonna change, at least over the short term, medium term, maybe over many years of doing that, you see change. Um, but actually growing lots of muscle at maintenance, just like you're just not, like the idea that you're gonna get bigger, you're going to literally get bigger at maintenance, it's just like probably not gonna happen. So that would be the first thing is like, I, I would lean on actually not changing a whole lot. I actually don't think you're gonna get that much bigger if you just stay at maintenance. Um, you might see a little bit of recomp, right? Little bit of muscle gain, little bit of fat loss, but I actually think that on the net net, you would enjoy that. Most people would enjoy that. But again, I don't get to choose. So something you can do is you can lift with less volume. So you can literally like, if you're lifting four times a week, an average of four to six exercises, you could maybe lift four times a week with an average of, you know, three to four exercises, or you could lift three times a week for four to six. You could literally just, I know it's uh, not a very nuanced answer, but you can do less sets. You can perform less sets. You can put less tension through the muscle. The amount of work you have to do to maintain the muscle you have is much lower than the amount of tension you need to grow muscle. So you can bring down the amount of work you're doing by a notable amount, at least by a third, potentially down to a half, depending on what you're doing and what your nutrition and recovery is like. And so you can just do less. Another thing you could do is you could switch to a more powerlifting, more direct strength work, which would just be mostly bringing your reps down into the three to six rep range for the most part. Um, and then obviously, I think there's a lot more to it than that, but let's just say, say it. You could do a bit more powerlifting, which can be a little bit inherently less volume, which kind of addresses the same issue of like, you can do less volume. Um, and you could get stronger and you wouldn't build that much muscle or you'd build less muscle. And especially at maintenance, it wouldn't be notable, I think at all. Um, yeah, you can do less sets or you can just keep doing what you're doing, not in a surplus. And I don't suspect you'll ever get to a point where you're like, I'm too big. I just don't think that's going to happen. Um, yeah. And you can, again, you could just, you could switch over to something like powerlifting. So you can switch over to something like powerlifting, which is more about getting strong is going to inherently have less volume, less optimal for hypertrophy, or you could stick with the kind of training you're doing, but do less sets, or you could just say, I'm gonna keep doing what I'm doing, but I'm just not gonna go into a surplus, and by that combination of stimulus plus lack of surplus calories, I'm just not going to get much bigger, which I think is totally the case. Here's where people go wrong with this. You don't stop training hard. You don't stop trying to progressively overload. Full stop. You don't stop trying hard. You don't stop trying to progressively overload. You're, you, like, yes, you can do less sets, but you still need to train hard. You still need to push yourself hard. You still need to send a signal of muscle growth, 
right? You, you need to send a signal of muscle growth. It's just gonna be on the net balance of muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown. You're not doing as much of the synthesis, like the synthesis, geez, that's a tongue twister stuff. Um, you're not doing as much muscle building because you're not doing as many sets that you're just ending with like a net maintenance. And so hopefully there's some answers there that were helpful. A bit of a rambly answer there, my bad there. Uh, next question. Besides genetics, is there such a thing as stubborn fat? Um... Uh, besides genetics, no. Uh, within genetics, uh, absolutely yes. So what, I'm not even sure what you would mean by besides genetics. I mean, is there such a thing as stubborn fat? What is stubborn fat? My definition would be fat that uh, is hangs on longer than fat in other sites on your body. So is there a difference in fat distribution in terms of where we gain fat? And is there gonna be a different distribution in, in where we lose fat more quickly, like chronologically when we go into a deficit? Is there gonna be an area of your body that holds onto fat longer? Absolutely. Is that gonna come down to genetics? Absolutely. Are there some uh, generalizations across the population level for both men and women in terms of where we, fat, we, we store fat quicker and where we hold on to fat longer? Yes, that's true, but that's still genetics. Um, and so there's both individualized. I mean, there's, again, there's like a generalized for both men and women where we store fat a little bit more and that can also change over the course of the lifespan. And then we also have individualized uh, fat distributions and where you hold on to fat more. And so outside of genetics, no. There's no like special type of fat that's more stubborn or anything like that. There is parts of your body that will hold on to fat longer and that will be the last thing you lose, let's say, the last place you lose fat. It's like, hey, my my limbs get really lean, but my uh, the sides of my stomach or my lower stomach or my hips tend to hold on to fat longer. That That is legit. That's totally a thing. Um, and it can be for some people vice versa, where their upper abdomen gets really lean really quickly. And that's something that stays lean fairly, you know, year round. But other things, other places are where we grow fat. So I don't even know what would account for outside of genetics. I think it all is gonna come down to genetics on some level. Next question, does it really matter which order you do your exercises? Like compounds first or last make a difference? It absolutely does make a difference which the order, like exercise order is relevant 100%. Um, let me see if I can give you some very general outlines here. Um, the stuff you do earlier in the session when you are less fatigued, you'll do better at. And when you do better at it, you'll get better at it and you'll get better results from that depending on what type of results you're after. So the stuff you do earlier in the session, you will perform better at and you will get better results from. That's the first thing. So the idea of like do the shit you care about most earlier in the session is a pretty good idea. I mean, if you care a lot about um, your, your, your Bulgarian split squats because you know they're a great exercise for you for your glutes, but every time you do them, you do them last when you are absolutely gassed and you're thinking about your post-workout meal and you can't wait to get out of the gym, and you're really tired from the last fucking four exercises, you'll perform worse at them and you'll get less You'll get less benefit than you would have if they were first. So if we're looking at exercise order, one principle is put the shit you care about doing or the, care, the shit you care about adapting to best first or earlier in the session. Another main characteristic I would say is put neurologically uh, complex movements first or earlier in the session. What does that mean? Um, exercises that require more coordination, that require more internal stability, basically stuff like squats and lunges and deadlifts, stuff that require a little bit more coordination, a little bit maybe, um, yes, compound is a word I don't love using, but compound lifts and 
neurologically complex have a lot of overlap. And so I would take the things that are that feel a little bit more complicated from a technique perspective, from an execution perspective. I would put those first. If you take a if you have back squat and leg press in the same session, I'm doing the back squat first. The leg press has a ton of external stability, provides a ton of external stability. You don't do anything in a leg press, but fucking sit there, put your feet on the platform and push, right? But with a squat, there's a lot of a balance, there's a lot of balance component. There's a lot of technique that's going on. You wanna be like neurologically your best. You don't wanna show up to back squats fucking gassed. Showing up to leg presses gassed is not the end of the world because you don't really have to do much other than actually like muscularly put forth effort. And so for me, the big ones are, Earlier in the session, stuff that I care about and neurologically complex, more technique heavy, uh, more coordination requirements, more internal stability requirements, I do those earlier in the session. Is exercise order a big deal compared to things like sets and how close you get to failure and your technique and your calories and your sleep? No, it ranks behind all of that stuff, totally. If you do the same workout in a reverse order, but your effort is super high where it should be, your calories are where they should be, your sleep is where they should be, your execution is where it should be, and someone else does the exercise in the opposite order, all things being equal, I don't think there's gonna be a big difference. Um, and the most practical time that this comes into play is if you work in a, if you work out in a commercial gym and it, you know, your coach, I do this, I have this happen in the group all the time. Somebody will be like, hey, does it matter so much if I switch the exercise order? Because every time I walk in, you know, the leg press is taken or the cable stack is taken. Is it okay if I change the order? It's okay in the context of if everything else is equal, it's not gonna be the end of the world. But your coach probably wrote the, the workout in an order that they would prefer you to do it in. And so I would start by saying, hey, can I execute this in this order? Because there's probably a reason. Um, but I tell people, listen, man, logistically and practically, those reasons are going to, are going to trump physiologically what I've programmed here. If you show up and you're, and the leg press is always taken, but right now it's not taken and you're afraid that it's going to get taken and you want to do it first, go nuts. It's not going to be the end of the world. Just take into account how that affects your ability to track things over the course of the mesocycle. You know, if you do the leg press first two weeks in a row, and then you do it second the next week, and then first and then third, that's gonna affect your performance and your ability to assess progression. And that might be a price that you're willing to pay because hey, logistically this makes sense. I don't have to wait for it for a fucking half hour. I support you if that's how you're feeling. Just know that like if you did it first and then first and then third, when you did it third, don't don't expect to just blow your performance out of the water. You're showing up to it more tired. All right, next question. Doing iliac pull down with both sides going at once. Does it matter which knee I, I have down? Um, real easy answer. I would not do a bilateral, meaning both hands at the same time, iliac pull down, down on one knee. The reason being is you're gonna need so much weight that a half kneeling position will not give you the, the stability that you require. Um, everyone who's been in my group has laughed about what they look like getting into a bilateral leg pull down. Cause you gotta really like, you're you're gonna be using a good amount of weight. And so you're gonna have to like really like kind of like uh, awkwardly walk yourself back into the bench. It's, I mean, there's no chance that I think even, even people that are new to the gym, I'm not saying you have to be some big, crazy, strong power lifter. Like even people are relatively new to the gym. If you really took an amount of weight that was challenging for you with two hands, and you tried to do it down on one knee, it would, it would at, at best, you could do it, but it would be uncomfortable. Um, so I, if you don't have the ability or don't feel like bringing a bench over and setting it up with a chest support, just do a single arm 
pull down because you can do a single arm pull, pull down in a half kneeling position because you're gonna be using less weight and being in the half kneeling position won't be such a crutch. Uh, nope, crutch is the wrong word. Won't be such a downside. Um, and this, and that's not even, doing a single arm and half kneeling is, is not a big deal. I think that's an amazing exercise. It's not even like you're um, making a big concession here. I think it would work amazingly well. I do them all the time. It's a fantastic movement. Next question. I keep seeing all the Instagram food and macro counters now having gut issues. What's up? I don't, I don't know. I don't see this at all. Um, I haven't seen any of this. Um, uh, I, yeah, I have no idea. I, I couldn't even uh, speculate why that would be. And I have ne not seen this at all whatsoever. Um, also, have quote having gut issues is already kind of a red flag i think we just like what gut issues um i'm not saying gut issues don't exist i'm saying like gut issues are a bit of a bit nebulous uh not sure what gut issues you'd even be referring to although there are some that exist for sure yeah i haven't seen that at all no idea next question only have smith machine damn planet fitness better to do squats with that or with dumbbells um before I answer that, you don't have to do squats. Like, why are you doing squats? You're doing squats to grow your quads or your, or your glutes or a little bit of your adductors. You know what Planet Fitness does have? A leg press, and it's fucking awesome. And so just get rid of the idea that you have to be doing a squat. Um, you can do, you can get what you wanna get out of a squat in a split squat, and you can get potentially even more hypertrophy out of a leg press. Uh, and, and and maybe even more, not even more, but an, an additional good exercise, maybe out of like a reverse lunge, whether that's with dumbbells or Smith. So let's just scrap the idea that you have to do a squat. You absolutely don't. Um, and I think it would depend on how strong you are because the dumbbells at Planet Fitness go up to like 70 pounds. And so, you know, in a crazy world where you could flip two 70 pound dumbbells up to your shoulder and do a front squat, you'd still be capped out at 140 pounds. Um, or if you're doing a goblet squat with one dumbbell, you're capped out at 70 pounds. Although both of those are still really hard to do, they still have a limit here. Um, here's my take. You can you can use the Smith machine for squats and it can work really well. It can work totally fine. You can do a goblet squat, which to a point, depending on how strong you are, can be a great exercise. But also know that you don't have to squat and you can split squat, lunge, and leg press your way to some bomb legs and you do not need to squat. Uh, that is the bigger takeaway here. Next question, how much, what percent I'm at? 7%, let's see if I die here. Um, all right, I'm in a cut. Is it okay for macros to be unbalanced one, once in a once in a while if I'm still in a deficit for the day? Yes. This is one of the reasons I'm not a big fan of the average person looking for body recomposition and fat loss to, to count all the macros. Because this is, like, I'm not, I'm not mad at you. you you're, you're obviously new to this, um, but I'm upset that you have this question. I'm upset with you. I'm upset with the industry that you have this question. Um, it doesn't fucking matter. Calories and protein are what matter. I'm not saying that you can't have good results tracking all the macros or that nobody should track all the macros. I'm not saying that, but this is, this is where macro counting gets a little fucked up. Like, calories are what are most important, and if you're trying to lose fat, they are by far the most important, Calories and protein, if you take those two together, basically make up 99% of your progress. Um, so in a cut, is it okay for macros to be unbalanced? Basically, like you don't hit your macros perfectly, but you're still in a calorie deficit. Is that okay? It sure as shit is. Um, it totally is. And once you've hit calories and protein, your carb to fat ratio will have fuck all to do with your progress. I'm not saying that you should never have carb and fat goals or that they're totally irrelevant. 
they, they can be irrelevant and you can choose to not track them. And generally that's my preference, but um, I just definitely don't want you to be tripped up with this. I don't want you to have any anxiety because you missed a, a couple of grams of protein that went to carbs and carbs that went to fats and that shit doesn't really make a difference. Um, I would want you to use a slightly less precise approach. I think from a, a mental health perspective, I think honestly from a mental health perspective, but also because of the mental health benefits, I suspect it to have actually physical uh, benefits in terms of your results long-term because you can sustain it without losing your mind. So those are my two cents. There were two questions here, both on butt winks. Um, one said, I'm gonna read them both. Thoughts on a butt wink in a squat. Is it okay? Is it bad? Are you over this question? And then, hi, Tammy. Tammy asked, thoughts on a butt wink in a squat. Okay, bad. Are you over this question? Now, I'm gonna link a podcast I did with Ben Giannis um, in the show notes. And what I'll do is I'll probably put a timestamp for when we start talking about a butt wink. And so I think that is a way more nuanced discussion. And I believe if you're if you ask this question, you should care about the more extended answer here. So go listen to that podcast. I'll I'll put in the, I'll put in the show notes the link and the timestamp for where that discussion is. It's at the end of the podcast. It's the last thing we talk about. Um, here's the deal: a butt wink is basically when you run out of hip flexion, and in order to get deeper in a squat, you run out of hip flexion, and so you compensate with spinal flexion, and so your lumbar your lower back starts to flex, basically like tuck under, and in the context, it's called a posterior tilt posterior pelvic tilt, which comes with spinal flexion. Is it bad? It, it is contextual. Um, it's contextual for a number of reasons. I think it is contextual to the individual on many levels. Some people will butt wink forever and never have an issue, ever. Some people will have a butt wink, not have an issue, and then be told that butt winking is bad, and they will start to reverse engineer an issue, and they start to feel like they're doing something wrong. Maybe they even start to experience pain that they wouldn't have. It's like psychosomatic scenario of, of you know, now you're told that this is bad, now you start to experience pain. I've seen that many times, especially as a personal trainer. I did that to people where I was like overcorrecting the, um, a tiny butt wink because I was like, thought it would be the worst thing in the world, but this person was experiencing no pain and felt really good and everything else checked out. Um, the question you need to ask is, is the person... How big is the butt wink? Um, maybe how much load are they using for these movements? Is it somebody that's doing a big butt wink on a one RM or is it a small butt wink that's done in more moderate rep range? Um, the second is, are they currently feeling discomfort? If they currently are feeling discomfort in their lower back and maybe even in their hips, then yeah, it's something I would address. But if they are not, if they're, if they're using maybe moderate loads and training generally with volumes that they can recover from, the butt wink isn't, let's say, a huge butt wink, which is, again, subjective and a bit vague. That's where there's a bit of nuance here. And they're not currently experiencing pain. Then the only question you can ask is, are they going to experience pain in the future if they keep doing this? And the answer is we don't know. We really don't know. What I can tell you, and I listened to uh, Ben and I talk about this, what I can tell you is it's definitely not helping. Um, at best, it's benign. At worst, it's it is currently causing pain. And at, at, I guess slightly less worse than that is it might cause pain in the future. And so what I would immediately try maybe is not telling this person that they have a problem. Let's say you're a coach. I would not tell this person you have a problem. Oh my God, this is bad. You're gonna hurt yourself. Oh my God, this is, you're gonna fuck up your spine. You're gonna break your back. You're gonna get back pain. I would not put that idea in their head. 
I might start to play with their stance width, maybe a smidge wider stance, maybe a little bit of external rotation in the feet. What that can do is just kind of orient like the way that your femur goes into your hips. And sometimes it can make a little bit of room for lack of a more scientific breakdown, a more and a better biomechanical breakdown there. It can make a bit of room for how the head of your femur rotates in your acetabulum, right, right in your uh, in your hip socket. Um, and for a lot of people, slightly wider stance, maybe a little bit more external rotation, tends to clean that up a little bit and they can get into deeper hip flexion without needing to compensate with spinal flexion. That isn't always the case though. Something that you might also do is just maybe not have that person hit that sort of depth where the butt wink happens. Like, let's call a spade a spade. When the butt wink happens, you have run out of room to lengthen the glutes. And so if your goal is to train the glutes, when you start to butt wink, the glutes are not lengthening more. You might be getting objectively lower in your squat, but the glutes are done, they're done. It's like it's like going so deep in an RDL that your back starts to round. Like, yeah, you're going deeper, but you're not accomplishing the goal of lengthening the glutes more. The glutes are as lengthened as they can get. You're in as much hip flexion as you are capable of getting. And now you're compensating with spinal flexion. It's the same sort of mentality. Um, and so there's no need to do it, right? It's not like going deeper, even if you butt wink is a good thing. And we also have to ask, are you doing this for a competition, right? If someone's doing a slight butt wink in a powerlifting competition and this is the depth they need to hit and with no amount of stance correction or technique adjustment, they can get to the depth they need to for competition. Okay, this is a totally different story when you're doing it for competition here. Um, and so hopefully there's some context there. I would I would start by trying to modify the stance and just gently see if, it, if there's room for... Um, a, a better spinal position in a, that similar depth. If you adjust the stance width and amount of external rotation of the feet, maybe you turn the toes out a little bit, maybe you try a smidge wider stance. By the way, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's you move uh, the feet in a little bit and you rotate them in a little bit and I would play with the stance. I would also play with elevating the heels. Maybe there's something there as well that can help. Um, but that might be my first port of call here, my first line of defense. But I would not sound the alarm, especially if somebody doesn't have pain. I would not be like, oh my God, you're gonna hurt yourself. You're gonna snap your back. This is not true, totally not true. Um, but it's not helping. And so you could be like, all right, let's see what happens if we work on st the stance width and the amount of external rotation. Maybe we just see if we stop the range of motion sooner. Maybe you start squatting to a depth, squatting to a target. Maybe it's a bench. Maybe it's a bumper plate that's stacked so that you objectively know, hey, when I go past this point, I run out of hip flexion. Um, you know, can I definitively say that if you keep squatting with a butt wink, you're gonna hurt yourself? I cannot say that. Nobody can say that. Absolutely not. No chance anybody can say that. Um, but maybe there's a little room for you to be like, hey, let me explore uh, changing my stance and let me explore maybe squatting a little bit less deep and let me see how that feels. Am I getting a similar stimulus? Do I feel like I'm still getting a good glute stimulus, a good quad stimulus, whatever you are going for? Um, and if you can mimic the stimulus without the butt wink, I think that's a, that's a net positive. Um, and if you can adjust the stance so you can get similar depth or even deeper with less spinal flexion, posterior tilt, butt wink, then I think I would do that. But if I see somebody, I'll just give you like an example. If I see somebody in the group squatting for glutes, let's say whatever, and there's a little bit of a butt wink and I will say, hey, how did this feel? That's just generally what I'll say because I don't want to put anything into their mind. And they said it felt good. I generally am not going to overly correct that. I'm not going to be like, hey, we need to, you know, obviously because in a group setting, I can't be as meticulous. In a one-on-one -on -one setting, I might be like, hey, next week, go slightly wider stance. Let's see what happens. Maybe that's where I would go with that. Um, but if somebody feels good and the butt wink is just a very tiny amount and everything else looks pr pretty in the groove and their technique looks solid, 
Um, it's generally just not something that, it's not defensible for you to freak out and need to correct that. That's just not a defensible evidence-based position right now. Um, cool. I would go listen to the end of the podcast with Ben and I, and, and maybe there's something else that we talk about there. Cool. Let's finish this coffee. Let's finish this Q&A. We got six or seven more here. We're going to go to the hour. We got 12 minutes here. Um, all right. Um, what's your favorite way to cook prepare vegetables in the microwave? No, uh, taste-wise, I cook all vegetables the same. Put them in a sheet pan, a little bit of olive oil, salt, pepper, garlic powder, and then burn them to a crisp. And I don't actually mean burn them to a crisp. I don't want there to be a ton of char all over them, but a little bit of char. I like my veggies. There's a little bit of burnt. Um, my favorite would be would be burnt broccoli. Tree, we call it trees down, where you turn the tree, tree part of the broccoli down. Um, just ends up having a really nice texture. So if you're going to make them to taste good, to be honest with you, I'm not a big air fryer vegetable guy. I don't know why, but every time I do it, it doesn't turn out as good as when I make them in the oven. Oh, well, maybe somebody can teach me. Um, but honestly, 99% of the vegetables I eat these days are in the microwave because to be honest with you, I just don't care. I'm eating them for health purposes, for good poops, like to get the fiber. Um, and I'm just, you know, if I'm making it for company, whenever we have company over, I make a vegetable taste good, whether it's asparagus or Brussels or broccoli, we're making it the same way, um, more or less. I'm not a big, I'm not a fancy cook. Uh, I want one skill. I just put the same vegetables into the same routine here. Um, but 99% of my vegetables are in the microwave, man. I'm just like not concerned with them needing to taste amazing. I want to get healthy. My budget allows for dumbbells at home. I don't care about body recomp. I just want to feel strong and healthy. Is this possible on a budget? Any suggestions? Fuck yeah, it is. It is sure as shit possible. If you get a pair of adjustable dumbbells and an adjustable bench, I think that is like the ground floor baseline for like, hey, I, I want to start resistance training. I want to make sure I'm getting some good stuff out of it. Um, I don't want to run out of weight within the first six months and need heavier stuff adjustable dumbbells, and a bench that has an adjustable back angle. If you can get those two things, you can train hard for health 100%. And you could, you could I mean, you would, you could also train hard for hypertrophy, I think, with the right amount of, pro, with the right style of programming. So adjustable bench, adjustable dumbbells, you're gonna be really, really good to go. And even in the beginning, without the adjustable dumbbells, you could get like fives, 10, like fives, 10s, 15s, 20s, 25s, and you could probably do well with those. I think over the long term, you're gonna need more for things like hinging and bridging and pressing and rowing. Uh, but in the beginning, you might be able to get by with that. But I, I think the fives, 10s, 15s, 20s, 25s, might as well just spend a little bit extra and get the adjustable ones. Something like a Bowflex or a Power Block are the two that I've used, and they're they're great. I'm in a bulk. How often to adjust macros if not seeing scale go up? I'm lifting four days a week with progressive overload. Every two to four weeks. Like, like at the end of the day, you're not in a rush um, unless you have a competition coming up, right? You're not in a rush. I would give it two to four weeks. Two weeks on the low end, four weeks on the long end. And I would go up by one to 200 calories and I would go up in calories from carbs or fats or both. Um, basically non-protein calories. Your protein should stay relatively static. If it goes up a little bit, that's fine. But I would imagine that your protein your protein goal won't change as these calories go up. Next question, D difference between neutral versus pronated row, both elbows far behind and max scapular movement. Listen, if your arm path, if what your arms are doing in terms of where your elbows are going 
and the amount of scapular retraction, which is, which is relevant. If both of those are the same, one has a neutral grip, one has a pronated grip, there's gonna be no difference, none. A smidge of bicep difference if we're being technical, but nothing, basically nothing. What matters is your arm path. What matters is your arm path. If you row with high elbows and a pronated grip or high elbows and a neutral grip, it's gonna be the same. In my opinion, the only difference would be that the pronated grip will be more comfortable for a high elbow position. Your grip is meant to make certain arm paths more comfortable. A neutral grip will make a tucked elbow position, basically lat movements, more comfortable. A neutral grip will make a tucked elbow position, tight to the torso arm position, more comfortable. That's why you use it. You don't use it because a neutral position, neutral grip has something to do with your lats. Your arm, your lats don't attach to your forearm, they don't attach to the wrist, and so it's not affecting the lat length at all. Um, but grip, uh, your grip will affect what arm path feels more or less comfortable. So if you're using a high elbow position, I like a pronated grip. If you're using a like a semi-adducted, like in this like 45 degree off the body, like you might use for something like rear delts, I like my arm to match that on a, semi a semi-pronated grip. If I have my elbows tight to my torso, neutral grip is just gonna be most comfortable for that. And that's kind of what you should let guide your grip decisions. How much sleep is a good sleep? Um, hmm. I think that we can look at this on a population level and we can say that's something between seven and nine hours for most people. That changes across the lifespan. It also changes uh, within the individual. There's a good podcast that it is a uh, an aggregate of a lot of clips between Peter Atia and uh, Matthew God. Um, shit, the sleep guy, um, best voice in the world, kills me. Should be reading like bedtime stories. Um, Matthew, something with a P, I think. Fuck, whatever. There's a good podcast with Peter Atia and 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 Matthew Walker. There you go. 99%, that's what it is. Where they, Peter put like a bunch of, at an aggregate, like really hot clips together. Um, I'll put that in the show notes. It goes all over questions like this and more. Really, really good. Um, how do women benefit from chest exercises? The same way we all benefit from chest exercises. Aesthetics, if you care about it. Aesthetics is in the, in the eye of the beholder. So if you think aesthetically having pec muscles, which I think underrated for women, especially clavicular pec, upper pec, um, looks great. Again, that's just my opinion. So totally irrelevant for what you think. Um, there's also probably some joint health uh, considerations over the long term to do some form of pressing movements, whether that's more shoulder pressing, horizontal pressing, some working of the pec minor, I think is a decent idea just based on shoulder mechanics. So doing some like decline pressing or dips or costal pec press on the cable, I think those can be relevant. But you have to ask yourself, do I care about growing this aesthetically? Yes or no? Does this have any relevance for joint health long-term? Yes or no? Usually the answer is yes. So I, it's rare I would, Never, ever, ever, ever do any pec work. But if you're asking me in a in a for a female client, are we gonna do less pec work? If they care less about pec aesthetics, the answer is yes. No question. Just want to say I, I appreciate you and all the content. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. I'm 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 loving it right now. I think it's just having a little bit little bit more fun with social media lately. Um just kind of not um caring so much about how social media is doing and, and getting back to the enjoyment of putting out content that I like, which has been fun. Do you think electrolyte supplements are necessary or is adequate water with daily eating enough? Um, I think adequate water intake without a fear, while salting your food to taste, I think is gonna cover the basis for 99% of people. I think the fear of sodium has gotten out of hand. 
I don't think sodium is 100% benign, but I think it's mostly benign for, especially for healthy people and especially for people trying to get healthy. Um, it's not benign. In, it's not physiologically benign, I think, but it is, from a practical standpoint, not something I would ever worry about for the average individual. Like tracking your sodium or worrying that you're having too much sodium is not anything I would ever let cross your mind. Um, you have way bigger things to focus on. And frankly, if you're someone who exercises and you sweat and you do resistance training or you do some cardio or you live in a hot climate and you sweat more, you lose a lot of electrolytes that way. Um, I think at the very least, you should be salting your food to taste, like not fearing it, taking salt with you, salting your food to make sure that it tastes in a way that is good. Um, there's some like just, it's a bit woo-woo, but there's probably some like salt regulatory mechanisms from a taste perspective. Um, from a from a um, biological perspective, uh, we crave salt on some level. Um, if you're low on electrolytes, you tend to have more of a drive to have salt. Um, but anyway, regardless, I, I don't think electrolyte supplements are necessary unless I, I take a supplement called Element, Element L-M-N-T. It's in, it has like one gram of sodium, which is a lot, a uh, thousand milligrams. And I take it on days I work out in my home gym or days that I play soccer. I live in Texas, fucking gazillion degrees. I sweat like a pig. And so I think that that kind of bulk addition of sodium and potassium magnesium is helpful for somebody who's sweating a fuck ton. So if you're going for a long run or you have a long grueling leg session or you're training outside or you're do playing a sport, I think that supplement can't hurt. Um, again, it's hard to recommend that. I don't think it's necessary. You could just salt your food a little bit more and it would be fine. I mean, we're talking about paying for a supplement that's literally fucking salt. I don't think, it's a little potassium, a little magnesium, totally. But I don't think it's necessary at all. It's certainly uh, not, uh, it's certainly a luxury product and I like using it during days that I know I sweat a lot. Uh, if you're in the sauna, I think it can be helpful, stuff like that. Okie doke. Um, battling tennis elbow since July, feeling really weak and jiggly. Any tips to heal faster? Stop saying shit like jiggly. Um, any tips to heal faster? I, I would make sure you're working with somebody who who is guiding you through this process because if you had tennis elbow and you're just like, oh, I'm gonna stop doing everything altogether, I don't, I don't know if that's the best way to, to heal. Quite often... Um, reducing volume and addressing exercise selection is a really good start when we're dealing with things like inflammation, like tennis elbow. Um, you know, sometimes still getting some blood flow to that area, but in the right context with the right volume, right proximity to failure, right exercises can be helpful. So I would work with somebody. I think people are like, oh, I got tennis elbow and then just stop doing everything altogether as if doing nothing is always the best way to heal. I don't think it is. So I'm not sure, but I would make sure you're working with somebody who's guiding you on this process. Next question, um, doo -doo -doo -doo, what's the best way to lose fat while maintaining muscle? Eat enough protein, at least 0.7 grams per pound, um, lift for hypertrophy three to five times a week, get enough sleep, and you're not gonna lose muscle. And you'll just, and then obviously calorie deficit. Looking, looking good, man, swole. <laughs> Thanks, dude, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> that picture yesterday is not a fair picture, by the way. Stupid fucking, like crazy good lighting. Totally unfair, but thank you. Barbell squats hurt my shoulder. Can I use a safety squat bar for all squat variations to avoid shoulder pain? Yes, you sure as fuck can. And to be honest with you, it's a shame. The reason safety squat bars aren't more prevalent is because you can only do one thing with it. You can only safety squat. Like a barbell has an infinite of like 10 to 10, you know, exercises that people do and it's way more versatile. And so 
if you're a gym owner looking to spend money, you're going to buy a barbell before a safety squat bar. But man, a safety squat bar, for those of you guys who don't know, it's just a safety squat bar is basically a bar that has like a, a little bit of pad in the shoulder and then has kind of arms that come out in front of your body. So instead of having to extend the shoulder backwards and hold the barbell, which can be uncomfortable for some people, um, you can hold onto handles that are a little bit out in front of your body, kind of like out in front of your chest. And they kind of go up to the bar and you can hold the bar in place that way. And it's a way more neutral shoulder position, requires less of this, um, let's say shoulder flexed, I guess, and 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 horizontal, whatever. We're not gonna go too deep into the biomechanics there. It's easier to hold and a um, safety squat bar is way more comfortable, especially for quad dominant squats. Could you also do good mornings on it and glute dominant squats? I think you absolutely could. I think its primary benefit is gonna be for more upright squatting positions, but I know there are people that do good mornings, which is like the total opposite end of the spectrum in terms of more hip dominant movement. So I think you can do it all with a safety squat bar. I know Prime Fitness just came out with the, fuck, what's it called? It's like an ultimate squat bar or something like that. Um, it looks unfucking believable It's like, it's a, it's a safety squat bar, but it's more than that. And if I if I barbell squatted more, it would be one. It's still it's like six hundred bucks, but it is epic. It's like ultimate squat bar, maybe it's called. It looks unfucking believable, and I still might need it. I still might need to buy it. Uh, it's just that cool. It's it's like I always laugh at this. Not to go too much on a tangent, but think about this for a second. We put barbell work up on this crazy pedestal, like barbell squatting, barbell deadlift, barbell rows, barbell press, as if like the barbell is like this like you know, really smart, well-designed object. A barbell is the most barbaric piece of equipment ever invented. Like the least like the least intelligent piece of equipment. When I say intelligent, I mean the least thought was put into a barbell. It's literally just a fucking straight stick that you put weight on. Like there was never, like this thing was made uh, uh, with, with one thing in mind is to carry lots of load on it. It wasn't made for like optimal biomechanics or optimal strength or optimal hypertrophy. It was just made to carry lots of load on it. And you happen to be able to do a lot of exercise with it. I always laugh because of like, like it's, I don't know how, when the barbell was invented, but I imagine it was one of the first pieces of like weight training equipment, pieces of equipment that was invented. Um, and it was made before we knew a whole lot better. Uh, and it's just so funny that like people are like, that they were still in a state of like this like, putting a barbell up on a pedestal when it's like the most rudimentary piece of equipment you could ever conceive. Um, yeah, just find that. I always found that funny. There's like almost certainly better options and and you would expect there to be better options. I'm guessing 100 plus years after it was invented, you'd expect us to have come up with better options. Cool. Uh, next question. Dealing with fit shaming in our society, have you dealt with this and how? Honestly, Hmm, what are my knee-jerk reactions here? My knee-jerk reactions are, one, shaming never helps, is never a good idea. The research shows that fat shaming or fit shaming, both are not helpful. It doesn't make people make positive changes, generally speaking. Fit shaming, basically, in my opinion, is like if you're around people that are giving you shit, let's say, for ordering a salad, and you can extrapolate that into many different scenarios, giving you shit for not drinking, giving you shit for going home so you can get some sleep because you have a training session in the morning, anything that regards like you putting your fitness and health first and then being shamed for it. I, I, my first thought I'll level with you is I ain't got time for people like this. Like I just, I don't know if I have anybody in my life like this because I just don't know if I'd let anybody in my life like this. And that's not always so easy. Sometimes they're already in your life. You know, you adopt a more fit lifestyle uh, later in life and you know, there are people that are already in your life that become these like fucking dementors. Um, 
Yeah, I, my first gut reaction, I'm feeling it like viscerally. It's like it's like crawling up into my chest. Like fuck these people. Like just hate this shit so much. Like you're. I'm not saying fat shaming makes sense. It doesn't. It sure as shit doesn't. But the, but the rationale for like. Like one of them is actually good for your health. Let's say making these choices to because you're making them to improve your health. Yeah, I don't even know if I'm going to go down that road. It was a thought that I was having here. But um, I just, my first feeling is I just don't have fucking time for these people. Like, like, I don't have time for dementors. You're trying to do you and improve you. And there's somebody there who's going to shit on that in some way. Like, uh-uh, man. Like, you can have a chat with this person. They might be a family member or a close friend. Like, you have a chat with that person. Like, this, I, I'm not going to take that from you. Or, you know, it doesn't need to be that uh, divisive, but aggressive. But... These people are just always projecting. They're always projecting. Like is 100% of the time they are projecting their own shit. You are making them feel bad for not doing this. You are being a mirror to their habits that they wish they were doing better. And so you're always like, there's almost something beneficial here where if you could spin it into a positive, like you're just like making people uncomfortable by how, uh, you know, doing things that they are not doing that they wish they either had the willpower to do or the desire to do. Um, so you're always project, they're always projecting, which is what I would keep top of mind is that people are just projecting their own shit onto you. This is not a you problem, this is a them problem. And two, I don't even know if there's just room for people in my life. At some point, this is like a really negative quality, this like dementor, this like um, inability to give unconditional support, um, especially towards something that, what are we talking about here? We're talking about getting healthy, like come the fuck on. Um, there was one more thought I was having, which just, um, yeah, I, I, I'm just not, I'm just not sure that I have time for people in my life like this, and I, and I would strongly consider trying to have a chat with this person if you really want to keep them in your life. That would be number one, and also understand, keep them in your heart, and know that they are just projecting their own shit onto you. That's certainly what I would, um, and I've dealt with this a lot with clients, spouses, friends. You know, when somebody comes to me and they want to improve their health, and we start working on healthy habits that might involve a change in routine in terms of you know, how often you go out to eat or what you order when you got to eat or how much you binge drink or how much you drink at all or, you know, prioritizing training or prioritizing walking or prioritizing sleeping. Like, those are things that most people know that they should do and when you start doing them, you're making them feel bad for not doing them. Like, misery loves company. Like, there's a, I always call them the like, come on, live a little, Dementors. That's what they are, come on, live a little. It's like, come on, do what I'm doing so I feel less bad about what I'm doing, right? Don't do the thing that, you know, I know I should be doing or would like to be doing, but I'm not doing. All right, we've got three more here. Impact of NSAIDs, uh, anti-inflammatories, on progress if taken hours after a workout session for headaches. Um, the We used to, like, like mechanistically, this makes sense, right? The, you, when you work out, you cause inflammation. It's important in the growth process to let that inflammation run its course. The inflammation, people get so fucking crazy. First of all, this is like, inflammation so bad, inflammation, we gotta stop being inflamed. You know what inflames you a ton? Working out, and you know what? It's super fucking important. It's an important part of the process. The, the adaptation recovery process is to uh, let this inflammation run through its normal cycle. So the question is asking, if I take an anti-inflammatory, right? If I take something that suppresses my, you know, um, like systemic inflammation, um, and in this case, locally as well, depending on like muscles that you've worked, is that going to inhibit my gains? And mechanistically, the answer is yes. If you, if you, uh, if part of the growth process is this inflammation process that you get from working out that needs to run its course, and then you take an anti-inflammatory, 
Also, another thing is like taking an ice bath, like an ice bath is inherently anti-inflammatory. And so do these things affect, let's say, let's use hypertrophy. Do they blunt the hypertrophy effects from a workout? The answer is yes, but it's much less than we once thought. Like it used to be this big no-no, if you take it, you take Tylenol later or you take Advil later, that it's gonna blunt the, the workout and you're not gonna get the benefits. That's not true. Um, you will still make gains maybe a little bit less, but to be honest with you, most of the research, actually, I'll be honest with you, there's been research in the last like five years or so where it shows basically that nothing changed at all. Um, and so I would lean more heavily on either nothing's happening at all and you're good to go, or it's so minute that if it's really serious and, you, and you're gonna benefit from taking Advil or something like that, that, that you would lean into it. Might you raise the threshold for when you do that or try and push it off further away from the workout? Yeah, I agree. I think if you leave the gym, pop a fuck ton of, of uh, of ibuprofen, probably not a good idea, probably will over the long term give you slightly less gains. I would I would bet that, frankly. Um, but if hours later, you know, once in a while you have a headache, I don't think you should be worried about that. I wouldn't lose any sleep over that. Next question, working 12s overnight makes goals challenging. Tips on how to make eating to build easier. So eating in a surplus easier. Um, geez, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not lacking sympathy for you. All I'm saying is that that isn't as hard as if you were like struggling with weight gain that you wanted to kind of curtail, kind of work on. Um, when you're gaining, here's my rule of thumb, get enough fruits and vegetables, hit your fiber goal. Don't absolutely throw away your nutrition quality, but you can lean on some more calorie dense foods to, to get yourself up to the calorie range you want to. So listen, eat, you know, 15 grams of fiber per thousand calories that you're eating. Once you're doing that through fruits and vegetables, mostly fruits and vegetables, um, you know, you're eating mostly whole foods, I think it's okay to add some higher calorie, higher palatable foods to get to the calorie range. So most people that are struggling to hit their calories in a surplus are still demonizing those foods as if they're not allowed to have them. And so nine times out of 10, it's about unraveling that mindset and allowing some of those foods to help you achieve this goal that you have. Last question, best exercises to strengthen the neck slash shoulders Feels tight with upper back pull down. Um, I'm not big on this, like addressing these very minute, very specific. Oh, I feel tight in this area. We need to address it. I would, I would want you to look at your overall execution of all of your exercises, and I would want you to look at them through the eye, through the lens of, am I doing them in a way that makes biomechanical sense, given my structure? Not, am I doing them in a way that looks like my favorite fitness influencer? Because not all of us are gonna make the same exercises look exactly the same. Some are gonna be more easier or gonna have more similarities. Some things like more multi-joint movements, whether it's RDLs or squats or overhead presses are gonna look different based on our current levels of mobility. So when you're doing your upper back pull down, I just want you to be doing an upper back pull down in a way that makes biomechanical sense given your structure, that's it. Um, and so if you don't have a coach, you're not in a group, get your form checked, 100% would do that. And I just wouldn't worry so much about this. Like, um, you, this if you're doing an upper back pull down and your neck or shoulders feel tight, the answer is not what exercise should. The, the question to ask is not what exercises should I do to strengthen my neck and shoulders. Um, the question is what what does the entirety of my programming look like? Uh, am I executing those movements with technique that makes sense? That I'm going properly close to failure, maybe not too far that I'm not fucking sitting down slouched over a computer for eight straight hours without getting up and moving. I'm getting enough steps throughout the day. I'm sleeping enough and I'm, I'm hydrated enough. I hate that it comes down to just like mostly the basics, but you don't, this does not need specific addressing in my in my opinion. Um, 
I would look at the things you should already be looking at, how you're executing movements, what your overall programming looks like, your sleep, your movement, not sitting in desk for eight hours, staying hydrated, making sure you're not living this like sort of like 21st century sloth hunched over lifestyle in front of a computer all day. So uh, those are my pieces of advice there. All right, that's all the questions. Thank you guys for asking and I'll see you guys in the next episode. Have a good one. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.